This is the EWN Podcast Network. Welcome to Late Boomers, our podcast guide to creating your third act with style, power, and impact. Hi, I'm Kathy Worthington. And I'm Mary Elkins. Join us as we bring you conversations with successful entrepreneurs, entertainers, and people with vision who are making a difference in the world. Everyone has a story, and we'll take you along for the ride on each interview, recounting the journey our guests have taken to get where they are, inspiring you to create your own path to success. Let's get started. Hi, I'm Kathy Worthington. Welcome to Late Boomers. Today we have as our special guest, Madhu Pura Dasa. Madhu was formerly a monk and is now a holistic health and business lifestyle coach who has trained hundreds of health and wellness professionals, coaches, and influencers in the ancient sciences and helps them create six and seven figure online businesses. And I'm Mary Elkins. Madhu lived and trained for half a decade as a monk in the bhakti yoga tradition. During these years, he traveled extensively studying Vedic arts and sciences under renowned teachers. In his free time, he's a professional musician who tours internationally. Welcome, Madhu. I'm so happy and grateful to be here with you both and so much appreciation for you guys keeping opportunities like this for us to get to come together and talk about stuff worth talking about. It's great to have you. you. Tell us, please, about your background and why you became a monk and how that led to what you are doing now. You're telling me most 18-year-olds on their 18-year-old birthday don't shave their head and move to India to become a celibate monk? (laughs) No, not that many. Not that many. Yeah, I have yet to met many others, if any. But, yeah. uh, well, the long story short is that I'd always been interested in philosophy and theology growing up. And I was super dissatisfied with the typical lifestyle that I was being projected in towards uh, societally, culturally, etc. And so at 16 years old, I uh, graduated high school. Not because I'm smart, but I just want to get the heck out of this place. And I was like, whatever I have to do to get me out of this place sooner, I'll do it. And um, I was going to college and I I was so dissatisfied. Really, it was just suffering this way or the other. And I was like, this can't be the purpose of life. It's just like you work, you get you get a job, you make a little money and then, you know, like, no thanks. <laughs> I, I opt out. And so I had finally got in touch with some of the Eastern philosophical and theological texts. Um, and from there, I started to get familiar with these ideas, and it really expanded my mind and my consciousness. Specifically, when I was 16 years old, um, I was somebody offered me $100 to read a book called the Bhagavad Gita, uh, one of the oldest sacred literatures in the world from India. And it, it just expanded my mind. And I was like, okay, I'm not enjoying school. This is definitely not where I'm being driven towards and called towards. I want to do something different. And uh, so, yeah, I wanted to become a monk when I was 17, but they wouldn't let me because I was a minor. <laughs> so on my 18th birthday, shaved my head, put on orange robes, started waking up at 3.30 in the morning with a bunch of monks in what I like to jokingly call a spiritual frat house. And where was that? Where was that? Uh, the first place, the first night it was in a monastery in Philadelphia. And I was just there for a few days. And then I went up to uh, actually a place in Montreal where there oh. was, uh, interestingly enough, is actually a group of monks that 
would travel throughout some of the big cities in Canada and going to the universities facilitating meditational programs. Mm-hmm. And so I got connected there and I traveled for some months, but really uh, the transformation happened when I went to India and I started spending half of the year in India. And then the other half, they kicked me out because of visa purposes. Then I, I would spend the other half of the year in different mm-hmm. monasteries, mostly in the U.S., and then um, some in the West, uh, in Europe. And how do you think that led to what you're doing now, though? Well, if you asked me then, do I ever expect to be, you know, teaching online? I said, absolutely not. But it, it created the foundation for what I am able to serve from today. And that is creating an internal understanding that service is life. The only, the key mm-hmm. to happiness is contribution and service as opposed to taking. And so learning that and spending five years training the brain functionally, you wake up three 30, do some group meditation, do some private meditation, do some studies, spend the rest of the day serving and cleaning and giving information out, et cetera. You learn how to prioritize uh, giving your heart for others in a way that doesn't actually deteriorate your own mind, physical health, et cetera. Because I, I like to say a drowning lifeguard can't save any, but a strong lifeguard can save many. And so if you do those diligent tasks every day and keep yourself strong, then you can go out and serve others. And that's really the foundation of what I learned as a monk. Ooh, that's powerful. So yeah. does, is that does that have anything to do with yoga and bhakti yoga? Yeah. Yeah. So yoga in the West, typically when we think of yoga, we think of the physical, which I'm a big fan of. It helps, feels good. Um, but when we talk about yoga, we're really talking about the ancient yoga literatures or these, uh, the oldest written philosophical texts that we have in the world, which are called the Vedas, literally just means knowledge texts. Um, yoga as taught from there is more of a psychological practice than anything in terms of learning how to train the brain so that you can sit and meditate. Even the physical yoga stuff that we're taught in the West, it's all to be able to get one to sit the word for Sanskrit for seat is asana. Uh, so the reason we do all these quote unquote asanas or postures is to asana, to be able to sit down so that we can meditate. And so everything that I learned from this bhakti yoga tradition uh, was based from these ancient yoga literatures, which were have been around for at least about four to 5,000 years or so. That's it. Mm-hmm. And, and, and is there a reason you chose that over other practices? Yeah. I, you know, as I mentioned, I'd studied philosophy and theology growing up, but I only had access to more like Western philosophy and theology. So it was primarily Abrahamic theology and then like West, pretty much Greek East philosophy. I didn't really have much access from, let's say, East east of Western Europe, if you will. And so when I was 16 and I read the Bhagavad Gita, that was my first introduction to beyond that. Let's just keep it simple, like something more. And what happened then is it like cracked my mind open because all these questions that I had, I, I would go to various types of uh, practice of places of worship, different types of um, philosophical like meetings and meetups, et cetera. But it got to the place where I was asking all these questions and people would either say, I don't know, or stop asking so many questions. But then when I started studying the Vedic perspective or this, uh, you know, the bhakti yoga tradition, if you will, not only did I never say, did I never hear stop asking questions? But there seemed to be an answer for everything, even with my cynical, pushy nature. I was always like, what about this? What about that? There seemed to be an answer for everything. And it got to the point where I was like, all right, fine, I'll try this. Well, what what kind of questions were the most prevailing in your mind? Well, 
when we're talking about philosophy, we're really just, there's only two things. There's what am I as a unit of, con- we know we're units of consciousness because I think therefore I am. So it's like, what am, what is the me? What is the I? And I know I'm not this body because the body's constantly changing every seven years, every single cell in the body is completely regenerated. So I'm constantly taking on new carne, AKA reincarnating. So who is the me that's not changing? That's witnessing the body change that's witnessing the the mind change so i was like what it trying to understand the nature of self which is talked about in full detail in full depth from the vedic paradigm and then the other aspect of philosophy is nature what's outside of you as a unit of consciousness and understanding material nature around us and then theology the only real difference is you bring in divinity which is okay what's the source of the little unit of consciousness, aka souls, selves, whatever term we might want to use. And then where does all this matter come from? And we bring understanding a source of that, which we might call a divine source, higher power, which really just means, you know, there's powers higher than us. If you don't think there is, I encourage people to go outside, spend a couple hours in the sun. You'll realize very quickly, there's a lot higher powers than me. <laughs> Sizzle up. So whatever the highest of high powers are, understanding that. And so these three features of reality, which is myself and other living entities, units of consciousness, nature surrounding me, not only my physical body, but as well as that, which is outside of my perspective. And then the source of that divinity. So these three topics I always was so curious about because I knew I wasn't just chemicals. I know it it makes no logical sense that I'm just a bowl of chemical soup that just randomly came together. Uh You know, I'm an artist. And if somebody took my music and said, Hey, look at this random sounds that came together. I'd be like, Ouch. And, you know, we can only imagine that with the beauty around us, if we can see how beautiful this artwork is around us of the world, we can only imagine how beautiful the artist is. Everything mm. beautiful comes from a mind, comes from a person, comes from creativity. So I was like, there's got to be more than just bowl of chemical soup. <laughs> I agree. And yeah. maybe before I go to my next question, maybe you'll sing a little bit for us, get a, get a little flavor of your music. Sure. How about this? I'll I'll do a mantra, and then if if you those listening, you're welcome to let this mantra into your ears. Well, it'll just it'll only be a few moments, but you can listen to these mantras. This is specifically a chant that many millions of millions of people for many thousands and thousands of years have chanted, specifically to um, not only ease the mind and focus the mind, but also. It's mentioned that this particular mantra uncovers the nature of the self, uncovers the dormant Mm. supreme consciousness from within. So I'll just chant it once through. And for those listening, you're welcome to just listen to it and let it uh, enter into the ears and don't let the mind go crazy. You just let the sound come in and feel that peaceful peaceful energy wash over you. So it would sound something like this. Hare Krishna, Hare Krishna, Krishna Krishna, Hare Hare, Hare Rama, Hare Rama, Rama Rama, Hare Hare. Beautiful. You have the most sets, beautiful voice. Yeah, that sets a good tone for our whole rest of our interview. Um, so tell us, what got you into practicing holistic health and Ayurveda? Or Ayurveda? Uh, well, the, the quick answer is a beautiful word called 
suffering, physical suffering. Oh, I, you know, I uh, I got terribly ill uh, traveling in India. I didn't know what the cause of it was, but long story short, I ate the wrong thing, unbeknownst uh-huh. to me, and uh, I just slowly but surely got ver- sicker and sicker and sicker. And I was going to doctors, even as a monk, I was quite. I just, I have quite a rebellious nature for better, for worse. And so I was like, I got to go real doctors. I'm not going to go to these like quacks. I was never quite that <laughs> inimical, but you know, I was like, I got to go to the real doctors. And so I was going and I, no one could figure it out. And I was like, yeah, maybe it's this, maybe avoid gluten, maybe like, and I was like, okay, but nothing got better. So eventually like friends of mine were like, dude, just Go get, go to an Ayurvedic doctor, which for those of you not familiar with that term, Ayurveda is one of the oldest holistic sciences in the world, um, comes from India. And it's, it, I mean, it's a very fascinating science. And I was like, all right, fine, I'll go. I'll try it on for size. And literally, without much conversation, I just sat down and he read my pulse, looked at my eyes, looked at my tongue, told me everything that was wrong with me. <laughs> And he was and right. It was right. And it was completely right. Well, and then I was like, ah, I can't be real. But he was like, go check this, this, that. And so then I went back to the, you know, more an allopathic uh, doctor approach. And I was like, check me for this, that, the other. And they were like, oh man, you, you do. Wow. You have, and it was a parasite on top of this, that, the other. Mm-hmm. And so I was like, okay, cool. And then I still was like, well, I still got to go the Western route for cleansing myself. So I did that and it was just, it was miserable. I won't go into the details for the sake of anyone that might be eating, but it was just miserable. And I, I, I put myself in such a strange situation. I mean, debilitated, you know, could move in bed, the whole thing, even as a monk at one point, like went home for my mom and dad to like help nurse to take it. It was, it was like a, it was such a, such a tough situation. And so I was like, there's got to be a better option. And so again, I went back to get some help from Ayurvedic practitioners and immediately felt some relief. Uh, they fixed my digestion. They actually had me eating food in a way I could properly assimilate it. And, and, and I started to get some, not only nourishment, but like some energy again. And then, th- you know, through what I call third-class intelligence, I finally learned first-class meaning somebody tells you what it is. Yeah, or or first-class means you see someone else do it and you don't even have to suffer yourself. Second class is you see someone else do it, you know, and you learn eventually. Third class is you see other people do it and you still don't make the changes and suffer. That's the approach I took, suffered and eventually took the Ayurvedic approach and it completely brought me back to life. I mean, that's, and that's the short version. <laughs> can, can you tell us anything about what you took or can you give our audience any advice on just maintaining health? Absolutely. So the cool thing is from this, the Ayurvedic perspective, literally Ayur is a Sanskrit word for life or quality of life. And Veda, literally, Veda means knowledge. Like in English, we have an ology, which indicates like the study of, or the science of, you'll see Veda is like the study of, or the science of Ayur, the quality of life. The approach they primarily take there always starts with two things and that's diet and lifestyle. Always correcting the our behaviors with our diet and our lifestyle first before looking towards medicinal assistance or medicinal aids. 
even before herbal medicinal apes aids. And so the first step was to not only regulate my eating and sleeping and natural functions of life so that my body could start to trust me. Cause the challenge is if I'm waking up at this time of the day and then I eat whenever I feel like it and now I'm starving and I eat and you know, I, maybe I exercise, maybe I don't. What happens our body can't trust us. The biorhythms and our circadian rhythms start to go out of whack. And then our body gets into our sympathetic nervous system response or our fight or flight overstimulated. And then it cannot respond properly by giving certain regulation and just creating a framework of our day. So our body knows what to expect of us when it can then send the appropriate signals, neuromodulators, hormones, etc., to allow our bodies to do what it does best. And that is one thing, one thing only to heal. So by first regulating, creating a regulation and a routine that I could heal from. And then second, modifying my diet in such a way that not only am I eating food that's quote unquote good for me, but it's for me, according to my unique situation, there isn't good or bad food. There's food that's either aggravating or pacifying for every individual based on their unique needs. So they gave me a specific type of diet that would be beneficial for me according to how well I could or couldn't digest my food. So that's where we started. And then secondarily, we had some herbal supports and then like a little bit of medicine here and there, which are all natural. All right. Well, on a different topic, talking about your business, how did you create a seven-figure business from scratch? Yeah, it it started with kind of happening seemingly randomly, (laughs) but uh, (laughs) it happened by chance because I graduated the monastery and I had no idea how to make money. I'd never made money in my life. Even prior to 18, I like... I was like a lifeguard for a little bit of time. Like I never, I never made more than, you know, eight, seven, eight, nine dollars an hour at like most. So I've never in my life had more than say, I don't know, $500, $600 in my account. And my family did an amazing job providing for me. I'm endlessly grateful for them. They, my parents worked so hard to maintain myself and my, they raised nine of us. Um, and they crushed it in every metric. And we never, like we, we had everything we needed and not necessarily, you know, we didn't, live in luxury per se. So I never knew what it was like to have money. And so I graduated the monastery and for about two years, I ran around the world like a headless chicken working really hard and off of donations. Cause that's kind of what I learned as a monk, but our society is not set up in such a way where people want to give do- donations for services. So I brought in a whopping 15 to 18 for 15,000, the first year, 18,000, the second year, um, outside of the monastery. And I was to say the least, uh, not able to support myself by any means. And so I was like, something's got to change. And so I made the decision. I thought to myself, okay, I know this. Everything starts in the mind. I know that anything I want in the real life has to change in my mind. How can I make a decision to be able to support myself and make some more money? And I was like, what am I great at? I know I can take people around India. I know I can help people with an India pilgrimage. So, and I'd helped many others with their India pilgrimage and set things up. So I was like, I know I know how to do that, but I was so scared. But what if I launch it and no one signs up? And what if people don't want to pay me? This is a lot of money. It was like maybe $3,000, something like that. And I might, at that point in my time, but like I'd never even made like that much money once. (laughs) So I was like, how am I ever going to do this? But I did it and I put it together, launched it. First one ever sold out. For the first time in my life, I made more in two weeks of work for the pilgrimage than I made in more than the year before that. And at that point, my life changed. I went, okay, I'm the only thing getting my way here. I'm the only thing that's stopping me from being successful is my limiting beliefs. And so that's what, at that point is when I started to study deeply the science of finance and money and learning how business actually works, sales, marketing, et cetera. 
And I mean, since then, having spent well over $100,000 of these kinds of programs and trainings, when I get into things, I really <laughs> try to assimilate them. And I just learned, and I was like, well, how do these things work? Because I was ignorant to that. And so slowly but surely with my Ayurvedic business as an Ayurvedic practitioner and healing others through this process of Ayurveda, I first grew it to six figures and then doubled that the next year. And then like that just kept growing it. And then eventually about two and a half years ago, I wound up spending more time helping my friends who are also holistic practitioners than I was helping people with their health. Cause everyone's like, Hey, how are you making money? I'm broke. And so inevitably about two and a half years ago, I just started talking more about the business stuff and it just made more sense for me to help other wellness professionals, like wellness experts, wellness coaches with their practice and their own health so that they can then go help another certain amount of people. Cause I can only help whatever 25, 30 at a time, but if I can go help 25, 30 to help another 25, 30 and they help another like this, then I can actually be of service. That was the mindset. Well, what That's is your attitude to towards money? What is my attitude towards money? Um, money, money is an energy, just like a knife is just a knife. And that means a knife can be used to perform surgery to save someone's life. It can also be used to kill someone to take their life, but the knife itself isn't good or bad. It's just a resource that can be utilized. So in the same way, money, money isn't inherently good or it's not inherently bad. It's just a resource. And in today's day and age, it's really the only resource we use for any form of barter. And in years past, there's other resources from different types of foods, spices and precious metals, et cetera. Nowadays, it's primarily money. And so money is not good or bad. It's just how you use it, the intention behind how you're utilizing the money. So my mindset is very much that to the extent that I can bring money in and use it appropriately, which really means improving the quality of life of others, that's how money is meant to be situated. Whereas if, I t if one takes it for their own self-exploitation or exploitation of others, that's when there are negative effects and consequences per se, which is when people say things like money is the root of all evil, this, that, the other. No, money was never evil. Your mindset was, I don't believe in evil, but money, your mindset was evil or you didn't engage it properly. The thing itself is not good or bad. It's just whether it amplifies your current state. So if you already have good things going through your brain that you want to do, money's going to make it better. You can help more people. If you want to not help more people, money can help you not help more people. Also. <laughs> Right. Well, what are some practices that anyone could do to develop a purposeful life? I know you teach that. Yeah. So it always steps with, it always starts with clarity. The first step I mean to say, it always starts with clarity. The mind is the beginning of all creation in this world. Everything that we can possibly look around and see first started in the mind of some living entity. You know, like you take a sewing machine, someone had to figure out, hey, this is a lot of work. How could I not have to do this by hand? I mean, we can make a long list. Anything we see around us is people envisioning something first in their mind and then taking that internal th thought and then putting that outside to create it into the real world. So what we learn as a monk is that everything starts from the inside, everything good, everything bad, everything ugly, whatever it is, starts from the inside and it comes out tainting your perspective. So when it comes to finding your purpose, the first step is always doing the inner work. And that is asking yourself, what is it that I'm really here 
to do? Like, what is my purpose? What is my unique psychophysical nature and gifts that I've been given that I can use to improve the quality of life of all the other individuals? So that's the first question. What is my purpose? How, with my unique setup, how can I give back and contribute in a unique way? Once someone asks that question and really gets to the bottom of it, the next step from there is how can I be of service? What that means is how do I take my gifts in such a way that I can improve the value. I can bring value to the lives of other individuals because every single gift can be given. (laughs) Everything that you have can be used and utilized in such a way to improve the lives of someone else. And somebody might say, Madhu, I have no gifts though. I don't have any gifts. Have you ever learned anything? Well, yes. Okay. Talk about that. Like, do you know how to get up in the morning and like not dread like, yeah, I've done that before. Okay, why don't you talk about that? Like, do you know how to do video games? Yeah. Is there a way you could do that to like, why don't you, I, have a, I say this, I have a friend who makes video games and so he, he makes like conscious video games. I was like, take whatever you like and ask yourself, then this is what I'm good at. This is what I know I could spend the rest of my life doing and I'm going to do it. Whether like, no matter what happens, I'm just, I enjoy this. I'm going to do it. And then how can I be of service? How can I use this in such a way that the people around me, their quality of life gets improved through this thing that I have. So these are the first two steps and to be really crystal clear, like not like, what's my gift? Oh, I just want to make people happy. How do you want people happy? Um, I make me feel good. How do you want to make them feel? I want to make them feel happy. No, it's like, let's get into the specifics. What can you specifically do to bring the quality of life to others? How can you do that? How can you bring it of service? And then having a mood of receptivity. There's a beautiful line that I learned from my teachers many years ago, and I encourage everyone to practice this line. And that is, I live to be corrected. I live to be corrected. This mood of this mood of receptivity in this world, if we go around this world with this mindset, I live to be corrected. Not only are you going to not get upset when people say stuff to you, because somebody gives you, you know, some correction, your ego says, how dare you? But you're like, I live to be corrected. No problem. But what it also does, it creates a mood of receptivity where you are no longer trying to control everything around you, but you are now able to see more opportunities. You are now not just getting reactive to situations when they hit you. You know, somebody says the wrong thing. Hey, pal, how dare you? You want to go? No, it's like, hey, okay, why is this happening? Why is this happening to me? I live to be corrected. This mindset creates a receptive opportunity so that one can see all opportunities as they are without being covered by my default response system, AKA subconscious programming. That's Mm -hmm. great. That's amazing. Okay. Totally different uh, topic. How did you meet your wife? I've seen her picture on faith on your Facebook page. She's adorable. And the two of you together are. (laughs) Can't disagree. (laughs) I can't disagree. Yeah. I mean, unfortunately she is the most adorable human too. It's kind of inconvenient at times. You know, when you try to get stuff done, you look at her. Um, (laughs) Yes. I, about seven years ago, I met her a little over seven years ago. We met, this is such a funny story. We met at a, in Denver, Colorado, I was living there at a monastery and a bunch of monks, 20 monks at the time. And, uh, we would go to different festivals and events and bring meditation there. And so we went to the 420 event, which uh, Wiz Khalifa and Snoop Dogg were performing. <laughs> I remember because it was memorable because I met her. Um, and she 
had already been familiar with meditation. She already done these practices, but she, she's very bashful. And so she's kind of shy. So she would do it at home and to herself and her meditation practice. But she was with a friend waiting in line to go into the festival. And we were outside sharing meditation. And your orange robe. No, actually, when we would go out, we would just kind of, you know, dress like gentlemen or gentlewomen, whatever the case might be, you know, just conservatively and, you know, in a way that was more accessible. Sometimes we'd go out in rows, but typically not, Um, especially because there's a subsect of yoga practitioners 50 years ago who totally like spoiled it for everyone because they went out in robes and fried everyone out and we're like, it made it weird. So we're like, yeah, it's, too, it's weird. We don't want to do that. Anyway, um, we were just kind of go just normally, but she was familiar. She was like, Hey, I know Bhakti. Like I've, I've studied a little bit of Bhakti yoga. So she was like doing some mantra meditation with us, et cetera. And I just remember being like, don't look, don't look, don't. Cause I was a celibate monk for five years, you know, completely celibate. And so I was like, don't look, don't look, don't look, don't look. And normally I was more controlled, but I just remember it was like, stop, stop, stop. And what happened was, um, without getting every single detail, she <laughs> wanted, you know, she was like, I'm going to come to the center and you know, I'm going to come to the meditation center that we had there in Denver. And then she came and, uh, for some time I was still a monk. And then eventually, and I, I thought she wanted nothing to do with me because she was so, she's so cultured and respectful. When she would see me, she's like, hi. And I was like, oh, do you not see how handsome of a monk I am? No, I'm just kidding. I didn't say that. <laughs> I didn't feel that way. But uh, I was like, this woman wants nothing to do with me. Why would she? She's the prettiest thing that's ever existed. Why would she, you know, who would be interested in like a monk with nothing to their name? And uh, so some months later, with the guy under the guidance of my teachers, it was time to graduate. It was like, it was just time to start to reintegrate, take everything I learned and then bring it into the real world and start to contribute from that space. And so after my graduation ceremony, um, a mutual friend of ours was like, Hey, and I was like, no, 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 no. She wouldn't be interested. She was like, are you sure? I was like, yeah, don't ask. I was like, totally. Like I never had a girlfriend to growing up. I was like, it's too much work. Too much work to have to like maintain someone else. No thing. So I was totally yeah. terrible. I was like, don't ask her. I didn't want, I don't want her to reject me. And then without even knowing that our mutual friend, it was it got like a teacher in the community was like, Hey, is this worth exploring? Um, unbeknownst to my now wife that that happened the day after she's like, called me under the guise of asking me some questions. And, uh, and after some questions, she's like, listen, Mato, I don't know how to tell you this. I was like, he, he, he. I was like a giddy child. I was like, he, I know exactly what you're asking. And um, I, I was totally flabbergasted. I didn't know what to say. So you ready to be, kid you guys, you have to be merciful with me here because what I'm about to tell you is really embarrassing. So she okay. said, Mario, I don't know how to tell you this, which was her way of saying, Mario, I like you. And I go, uh, 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 I'm flattered. <laughs> I said, I'm flattered. And she said, excuse me? I, said, <laughs> I was like, uh, uh, uh. Anyway, lo and behold, eventually um, we started to speak regularly. And I was, I was always traveling. So every, we developed a relationship really over the phone and over FaceTime. Um, and that was a little over seven years ago. She still likes me. Oh, <laughs> that's wonderful. Well, Tell us about what's the name of your band. You have a band, and when did you start playing in a punk band? Yeah, and so tell us I, about that. That's so weird. It's just very weird. How does right? it fit? Yeah, I, no, it doesn't. Um, I, a friend of mine, 
a few friends of mine have a band that they started many years ago and they toured the world many times over. And what happened was they start they started getting together. This is 2017. Mm, to, uh, 2016. Anyway, some years ago, six, seven years ago. And uh, they started to get together, but the, uh, the guitarist, the other guitarist fell away from their meditation practice and just kind of became very not interested in spirituality. But these band members, people who I knew, they're very much, very deeply spiritual people, like literally travel and like do some meditation together everywhere we go. It's like the whole thing. So they now needed um, a musician, somebody who could just pick up a guitar and figure out how to play, which is, you know, there's a lot of musicians, but not anyone can just pick it up and figure out. And they also need somebody who would sing and help with like backup vocals, help with singing, uh, harmonizing, et cetera. And so my friend was like, hey, he actually, I remember he messaged me, he said, do you know how to chugga chugga? And anyone who's familiar with the punk scene has laughed really hard when I just said that. What it means <laughs> is a palm mute, chugga 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 chugga. And I had no idea, so I Googled it. And I was like, oh, I can palm mute. And so he was like, do you want to play in this band with me? It's called Shelter. And uh, I was like, I'd never even heard the band at that point. I was so out of the, you know, I'd been a monk. I was like, I didn't know anything about yeah. anything. But I was like, sure, that sounds fun. Not knowing we're about to play five weeks later was the first concert and I had to learn 20 songs and we were about to play in front of like 10,000 people or whatever it was. (laughs) And, uh, and so it started there. Yeah. And I learned all the songs and, um, and then, yeah, it was crazy. Wow. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) What do you call yourselves? Shelter. Uh, The the, the name of the band is shelter. Yeah. Oh, oh, okay. Just great. Yeah. And, and we don't know. tour so since COVID, we haven't toured so much, but, uh, you know, who knows, who knows when we'll, we'll get moving again. Yeah. Good. Well, what, what are Bhakti and Vedic arts? A, a sure. different topic. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Bhakti is literally a Sanskrit word that means love and devotion. And oh. according to the ancient yoga literatures, the ancient wisdom text from um, East, they say that the most important thing in this world is Bhakti or love. And the way, we say devotional service because love is not static. Love is a verb. Love is something we do. And how do you express love? It's through bhakti or devotional acts, devotional service. And as opposed to just giving bhakti to love to other individuals, it's turning back towards source, turning back towards uh, divinity from within, divinity without, and developing a life of service based on not just improving my quality of life, but serving source and serving all other entities together. That's the concept of bhakti yoga. Yoga literally means yuk. Uh, yoke, we have the same cognate in English, means to connect or unite because English comes from Latin, which comes from Sanskrit. So there's tons of cognates there. Um, and so yoga, the root of that huge or yuk means to connect or unite through bhakti, loving devotion. So the practices of bhakti are ways in which one can start to perceive divinity within their lives in a way as to ultimately transcend beyond material conditioning and suffering. Because you might, might have noticed a little bit of suffering in this world, teeny little bit. And um, the how do we, we're not ever going to be able to get rid of suffering. So how do we understand the purpose of suffering and utilize that in a way to expedite us towards transcendence, transcending beyond material conditioning. And that's, you know, in general, the practice of bhakti. 
And so these different arts and sciences that come out of the bhakti practice are really developed in such a way as to train the mind and the brain to go past your default conditioning, all these layers of superimposed or artificial conceptions that we bring into the mind and the condition, how to get rid of all of that and see the self for what it is. According to the Vedic perspective or the ancient yoga literature perspective, it's eternal, blissful, and full of knowledge. The self, the soul, the unity of conscious, eternal, blissful, and full of knowledge. To the extent that we can get in touch with the nature of the soul, we experience the purity of self, aloof from the physical body, which is constantly changing, aloof from just the mind, which is also changing, and actually be situated in the self with this mood of service. Right. Good, good answer. And I have another question for you. What is conscious coaching? Which is, I assume, what you do. Yeah, conscious. Well, I, I, I first say what it's not. And why I started conscious coaching is because I had t- I had spent a lot of time in the space and like the online coaching space over the last many years now. And I found that there's a lot of what I would say unconscious coaching or non-conscious coaching, which means just trying to get people to do what you want them to do. It's like, I mean, mm. we all had this experience with like the used car salesman who's like, I know I'm not going to get off this lot without buying. And they're like pushy. And t- and I found myself as I was learning, like sales and marketing, all this stuff, I was learning these things that are so outside of my value system. Like mm-hmm. how to, and I'm like, I'm not going to do that. That's ridiculous. And so what happened was as I was learning, I was, re- I was really learning what not to do. And, you know, in the name of leaving money on the table, I was like, I'm going to actually just change people's lives. Like, let me actually serve here. I'm like, as opposed to everything I need is going to be taken care of. I'm taken care of. The squirrels outside are taken care of. The birds outside are taken care of. Why do I got to be an anxiety that I'm going to be taken care of? I'm going to have everything I need. Why would I have to try to exploit other living entities in the name that I think I need to do that to get what I, it's, it's ridiculous in my opinion. And so I figured out, okay, what are the practices that are in alignment with my values so that how can I change all these areas that I'm learning and modify them so that not only I can sell and like have a business and market and actually sell out programs, but in a way that's not going to be manipulative and coercive and, you know, getting like psycholo- psychologically, uh, like twisting up people's minds practically. So I developed this, what we now call, you know, conscious coaching, um, which is just designed to help people be able to grow their businesses, be able to increase their health as well, which is another you know portion we've been doing for a while, but the last couple of years is more towards helping like wellness professionals with their business, how they can grow up without ever having to compromise these values, get slimy, get weird, and just do what you want to do with integrity and never having to twist people's arms. But rather the differentiation is move towards influence and away from scarcity. So scarcity mindset is, I just don't, I, there is no shortage in this world. There is no shortage because everything comes from a divine source and divinity ain't lacking no nothing. And so anything that might be needed, there is availability for that to be manifest in our life. All we have to do is attune ourselves to that nature, to that desire. And so as opposed to working off a of fear, oh, if you don't do this, you look at all these bad things that are going to happen to you. And like using all these ways to mess with people's minds. I changed the framework to abundance. I'm not suggesting I'm the only person who's done this. Many people, of course, but have. But um, to instead of what happens if you don't, here's where you can be. And here's how I'm logically going to get you there. You want to do it? And I, I think that's why we've become so successful in our business is through this conscious approach as opposed to this like, how do I get as much money approach? Does that make sense? Yes. 
Do, yes. do what you really love. Yes. Yeah, and the rest, the rest and, will work. Yeah. yeah. So who are your biggest inspirations? I should, I should always go back to mom and dad because golly jeepers am I grateful for them. Um, they were always spiritual. And so I, I was raised in a household to like question things. Like don't just accept, don't, you know, I was raised in a household where blind faith and blind doubt was equally detested. Like it was like, Hey, don't just accept things and don't just unnecessarily reject things. Like think, be a thinker, ask good questions, etc. But they were spiritual. So I was like, I'm not spiritual. That's my parents. Thing. Of course, growing up, eventually I was like, oh, all right, guys, you kind of knew what you were talking about. And so I always have to give my credit and love there because they, they created such a strong foundation for me to be able to do this. And, you know, it's not typical. I, I don't think it's typical that parents are always excited if their child, as soon as they become an adult, want to become a monk. You know, you're everyone's like, no, you got to get a partner. You got to have some, get, you got to get a job. And they were like all about, they're like, yep, do your inner work first, son. And so I'm, I'm very grateful to them. And then I, I should first then give, uh, next then give gratitude to my primary teacher, the person who helped me throughout the years of my monkhood, even still to today, who has changed the lives of, I mean, innumerable people, innumerable people in this world. Um, his name's Vaisheshika, Vaisheshika Das. And he, I mean, I, I could, I could spend hours glorifying and appreciating, appreciating him for what he's done for myself and so many others uh, that I know and many others that I don't, but he's the one who really created an example for me to follow because anyone can theoretically teach this stuff. It's like, yeah, the book says this is what you do, but it's different for somebody who's done it. And it's different for somebody who's done it for 50 years without, without a slip up, you know, like, like full consistent hours of meditation every day, hours of integrity, a clean life. I mean, just like the example of what's possible. And so my, my gratitude to him. And then uh, on top of that, I'll also just share my appreciation for really those like yourself, other, what I call like conscious entrepreneurs, if you will, those who are dedicated to providing opportunities and knowledge for anyone and everyone to be able to come together and actually go to a deep place, actually go to a place that's going to be transformational. That's going to provide some type of not just improving the physical body, not just improving the mind, but actually going deeper than that. And that's, I mean, that's really where my gratitude and inspiration is fixed from. Well, Mary and I love you for that. <laughs> yes. Um, what would you like our listeners to have as a takeaway today? What I would say is there's always an option and all you ever have to remind yourself is just do the next right step. Life's overwhelming. There's no way around it. If you, if you think about it too much, you're going to freak out. Pick a good goal and just ask yourself, what's the next step in the right direction? That's the primary thing I would encourage everyone to do because that's how I become. I mean, if you want to say what I have is successful, I feel like it's successful because I'm just grateful for what I have. And if, if, mm. if you want success in your life, I can tell you it comes from that. It's have a very clear, crystal clear goal in mind. And then ask yourself, what's the next right step in achieving that? And, you know, we have a protocol that I developed called the monk mindset method, which kind of walks you through that. But in simple, it's just figure out exactly what you want, figure out what the result of that is. An example being, instead of saying, I want to lose weight, it's like, no, what do you want to do? It's like, I want to be, I want to feel strong in my body. 
It's like, why do you want to feel strong in your body? It, you like really get to the root of it and then ask yourself what the destination of that looks like and then figure out what behaviors you need to commit to doing every day that's inevitably going to provide you that goal. Like, what do I have to commit to doing? Two minutes a day, 10 minutes a day, two hours a day. I don't care what it is. Just commit to something. Then you say, no matter what, I don't care if the house burns down, like, I'm going to do the things I committed to because I know inevitably I will become successful in the thing that I want and then figure out what's going to stop you from doing it <laughs> and then start to tackle those one by one. That's a different conversation, but figure out what you want and then figure out what you have to do to take at least one right next step in that direction. I love Perfect. that. That's great. Yeah. Thank you so much. Our guest today on Late Boomers has been Madhu Purabdasa, former monk and bhakti yoga tradition, and now a holistic health and business coach. You can find him on Facebook on his page called Monk Mindset Mastery and on all social media and on the other place. Tell us, Madhu. Well, yeah, probably the easiest way to find me. And I was like, I'll offer this to you guys because I'm so grateful to you is um, anyone who can find me on uh, any social media at madhu.life, M-A-D-H-U dot L-I-F-E, um, a little hidden H there, M-A-D-H-U dot L-I-F-E, any platform, Instagram, Facebook, link, whatever it might be. Mm. If you find me there and you send me the word, um, let's do something fun for you guys. Mm. You can send me the word, you can send me the word, uh, Bloomers. Boomers. 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 No, boomer. Boomer. Yeah. Boomers. That's what I'm thinking. Boomers, you send me the word. Plural. Yeah. Yeah. Plural. Boomer boomers. Yeah. And then what boomers. you'll do is, is I will send you access to, we've got a, a really great free community. I'm a big fan of just serving first. And we've got this great community with tons of free resources there. And what I can do is I'll, I'm happy to give you guys access there. And so just drop me the word boomers on any platform at modu.life and we'll get you taken care of. Love it. Sounds great. We want to remind our listeners also to please subscribe to our YouTube channel called Late Boomers Podcast. And if you listen while you're walking and doing stuff, then try to take a minute to give us a five-star review on your favorite platform. We're on Instagram at I am Kathy Worthington and at I am Mary Elkins and at Late Boomers. We always try to bring you something to uplift and inspire you and something you can take action on. Thanks again, Madhu. Thank you. Thank you for joining us on Late Boomers, the podcast that is your guide to creating a third act with style, power, and impact. Please visit our website and get in touch with us at lateboomers.biz. If you would like to listen to or download other episodes of Late Boomers, go to EWNpodcastnetwork.com. This podcast is also available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and most other major podcast sites. We hope you make use of the wisdom you've gained here and that you enjoy a successful third act with your own style, power, and impact. <laughs>